0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back. This is Dollars and Change. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And you are listening to Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Uh we are here with Alan Murray, who is the President of Fortune and Chief Content Officer at Time Inc. Welcome to the show, Alan.
1: Hey Nick. Hi Sandy. It's great to be with you guys. We're delighted
2: to have you, Alan.
0: So we're we we really are delighted to have you and what you're doing is <laughs> sometimes
2: we lie, but we're very delighted to have you.
0: <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. No way. way <laughs> we to go, really Sandy. are. <laughs> Um, but really, you know, our show is around the the social impact of business and how yeah. businesses, the role of business has sort of evolved and changing. And that's certainly yeah. something that you have, you know, your finger on the pulse of. So before we sort of get into the specific CEO initiative that we definitely want to talk about, can you give us your view on how you've seen the private sector's role for social good evolve over the last several years?
1: Yeah, so I've, I've, I've covered uh, business. Uh, business and economics for most of my career but but it became clear to me four or five years ago that there was this growing concern about the the the, the uh, public trust in business public uh, confidence in the role of business that economic progress and business progress was aligned with social progress you know uh, uh, and, and that really came to a head in the last Two years, you saw it with the Brexit vote in the UK. You saw it in our election, where you had uh, Donald Trump on the Republican side taking a kind of a populist and, and sometimes during the campaign pretty much anti-big business approach, and on the on the Democratic side you had this self-proclaimed socialist who came awfully close uh, to winning the the nomination, and you had Hillary Clinton backing away from free trade, and so all of this swirling around and you saw you've seen the same thing in France and other parts of Europe there is a feeling in the developed world that the system isn't working as well as it should be, that too many people are being left behind, that inequality is growing, that business is looking after shareholders more than it's looking after its workers and the communities it operates in. And a growing number of business people that I talk to recognize this is a problem. And as one of them said to me, hey, we are in danger of losing our operating license here if we don't figure out a way to address it.
0: Well and and Alan you know, Our last guest, who is a, was an associate professor of marketing over at Drexel University, he was saying that while those sentiments, we do feel that we see that people are voting this way, at the end of the day, especially Americans, we're not anti-business. So no. we're just trying to figure out the, what the role of business is in these issues. Is that, does that resonate?
1: Well, I think that's right. I mean, there were some scary polls that were done uh, during the election last year. One was done by Harvard that showed that a majority of millennials— don't believe in capitalism, a majority. So, you know, there's some, there's some uh, early indicators that we, re- that we really have some work to do to reestablish the public's trust in business as a, as a tool for social progress. I mean, we all know it is, right? Where would we be without the business progress of the last hundred years? But, but public confidence in that basic truism has declined dramatically, and it's declined because of some pretty uh, uh, demonstrable trends of the last couple of decades.
2: Yeah, talk about those trends. I was going to ask, you know, where do you see this evolution coming from? Is it the value set of emerging generations? Is it
0: inequality? Inequality, inequality,
2: really poor, you know, sort of very public, poor corporate behavior. And a few very, uh, you know,
1: flashy instances. Uh, look, I think all of those things have played a part, uh, but really, it, I think it's pretty fundamental the post World War II economic trends. You, you had these big changes: globalization, digitization, uh, uh, that have that really drove prosperity after the war, and for the first three or four decades, really pretty much through 1990, everybody benefited from that. There's general progress and general uh, increase in living standards. But then what happened was, uh, uh, and this is not an altogether bad thing, that uh, uh, the, the poor countries of the world were able to participate in this globalization and digitization. And so you had this huge new workforce in China and other parts of Southeast Asia and, that came onto the marketplace. And you had a uh, uh, business in Europe and the U.S. outsourcing jobs to take advantage of lower labor costs. So you had this huge labor arbitrage going on. And as a result, businesses became less connected to their community. You know, there was a time when Eastman Kodak in Rochester, all its employees were in Rochester. Right. You, you know, everything that happened in Rochester was because of Eastman Kodak. And that, that link between business and the community deteriorated because the workers were actually in China or Taiwan or someplace else. Uh, you saw the rise in living standards for many, many people start uh, uh, no longer uh, rising. Uh, and so the whole kind of social connection between progress and business growth that existed from the end of the war through 1990 uh, broke down.
0: So just um, pretty recently, Fortune released the change the world list of businesses that are doing well by doing good. Um, what are you seeing now within the, the corporation that you know might qualify you for a list like that?
1: Well, what what? What I mean, I spend a lot of my time. I know you guys do the same. I spend a lot of my time talking to CEOs, you know, observing business trends. It became clear to me that there was a a growing group of CEOs that were that were both aware of the declining public trust for business, also aware of the declining efficacy of government. I mean, part of the trends we're talking about is driven by the fact that government has screwed up so badly. Uh, uh, over the course of the last uh, five six seven years, uh, and we 're saying we have to we have to show that business that the profit motive can be harnessed to do good things. Of course it can, but we have to do a better job of focusing that and demonstrating its power and that 's what the change the world list was established uh, to to uh, showcase to highlight these companies that say we 're going to do good things in the world, not just as a charity project, not just as Corporate social responsibility, but we're going to do it as the core of our business strategy.
0: You know, we're going to help
1: uh, get water to communities that need it. We're going to help make sure uh, a lot. Uh, there, you saw some of this in healthcare. Uh, there, there. If you look at the pharmaceutical companies, there's some. Uh, you think of where Valiant was two years ago. It's mm-hmm. changed some today who were in a pure profit maximization mode, hey, say, hey, the government regulations will let us jack up prices 2,000%, and they'll pay the price, and so we'll do it, and we don't care if that means fewer people have access to this drug. But you've, you have other uh, companies like uh, uh, Glaxo, for instance, that are saying, no, we have a responsibility to figure out how to make a profit by getting this drug to as many people as we possibly can. And so it's those kinds of examples that the change of the world list is intended to highlight.
0: This is Dollars and Change, and we are speaking with Alan Murray, who is the president of Fortune and the chief content officer at Time, Inc.
2: Yeah, and I don't want to forget that title and sort of, you know, exploring your point of view. You're talking about examples that are worth highlighting. And I think more now than ever, individuals, consumers can tell these stories because of press outlets like Fortune and Time. What do you see? How have you seen the role of press evolve in telling these stories? You know, you guys have done a ton to make this more of a priority in terms of content. Um, where's that coming from? Is yeah. that demand? Is that is that the responsibility of your business? An
0: editorial decision?
2: Yeah,
1: I think it's some it's it's some of all three. I think people are interested in hearing these stories. It is an editorial decision. Uh, um, and and look, I I uh, I I think Time Inc. Uh, occupies a unique position in a large, diverse media landscape that is becoming ever more polarized, right? You know, uh, Mm -hmm. more and more people are firmly placed on one side of the ideological spectrum or on the other side of the ideological spectrum. And at at Time, Inc., we're committed to mass audience, we're committed to serving everybody, and we're committed to giving them facts and the truth, you know, and that goes that's true of time. That's true of fortune. It's true of people. If mean, you walk into a grocery store and you look at the magazines on the newsstand. I don't want to mention any competitors by name, but really people who who look at those magazines regularly will tell you, there's only one that you can trust with like 98% confidence. And that's people. Uh, we don't print, you know, we don't print rumors of the pregnancy. We don't print the story until we know it's actually happened. Uh, uh, so, Um, uh, So I I, I do think there's an important role for media to play, and it's becoming more important in this world of polarized, uh, polarized media to make people aware of organizations that really are making progress addressing important social problems.
0: And as you think, you know, you've spoken a little bit around sort of a lack of trust in business, a lack of trust in sort of our government and institutions. You know, your content, I mean, Fortune is very business focused. Time yeah. is, you know, much more broad. How do you decide where, you know, where those what's what are the appropriate stories to tell in that regard?
1: Yeah, well, it's very much up to the editors, uh, but that's the reason why time Uh, was eager to partner with us on the uh, CEO initiative. I should say, by the way, this really got going last December when we took time and fortune together, took about 100 CEOs of big global companies to the Vatican in Rome and spent a day sort of focusing on this question of what can business do to address big problems, whether it's the connection between technology and jobs or Access to water, or you know, uh, 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 environmental problems, and we spent a, a day deliberating on those, and then had a meeting with uh, Pope Francis uh, uh, the following day, and it was really a moving experience. And a bunch of the CEOs said, "You know, you this you can't let this be a one-time event. This is uh, this is critical work, and we we want you, Fortune, to continue to convene these people and continue to try and push this forward." So. Uh, but time was there from the beginning uh, it, because I do think part of, the, part of the role is to help the CEOs understand best practices and how they can make a difference and how they can help each other make a difference. But part of it is also to make sure that the public understands what's going on, uh, and, and time, is a, time is an important
0: piece of that. So, I'm, you know, you talked about best practices, you talked about knowledge sharing. What, in, in terms of your planning around the CEO initiative, you know, reiterate some of those major goals, and how do you know what best practice is? You know, are there data around this?
1: No, There's not a lot of good data yet. I hope over time we can help develop that data and highlight the data. Some of it is just CEOs talking to each other about things they've done that has worked, and then some of it is you know one of the one one of the breakout groups at the Vatican, for instance, was uh, focused on on health care and providing health care to the the several billion people in the world who still don't have adequate health care and the need for you know that it, it's not just a question of making the drugs available and making the therapies available, but having uh, educated. Community healthcare workers who can make sure that the right drugs and the right therapies get to the right people at the right time, and so they talked about the need for training a cadre of millions of healthcare workers in these in these markets. And the the uh, CEO of Novartis was there, and the head of a nonprofit called Last Mile Health, Raj Panjabi, was there, uh, and they actually began a conversation with some other people who were there to talk about how do we actually make this happen. So they continue the conversation after the Vatican event, uh, and they'll be coming back to the CEO initiative to talk about some of the progress they made. So we, we hope to, we hope to uh, you know, we're a media organization, right? We're not a nonprofit or an, uh, an action or uh, organization, but we hope to sort of inspire and incubate more examples like that where companies can work together to solve pressing problems.
2: And what are the trends you're seeing? I mean, you just referenced a public-private partnership potentially between yep. this, you know, nonprofit and, and a drug company. When you look across the CSR activities or the, you know, sort of business for good activities in this you know, suite of companies you highlight, what are the trends you're seeing? What's different than 10 years ago?
1: Just more and more companies are interested. More and more CEOs are interested. I mean, the the sign-up rate for the CEO initiative in September. We've got the the CEO of uh, Mastercard, Aj Banga. We've got the CEO of Levi Strauss, the CEO of Mass Mutual across industries. CEO of Siemens, uh, uh, Don Barton from McKinsey and Company, who all said, "I want to be a part of this." Um, uh, so the the main tr- trend I see is this feeling that this is something these are people who don't have a lot of free time, but that this is something that they need to devote some time to because the future, not just of their business, but in some ways, the future of capitalism is at stake.
2: And so you're really seeing the business case being a a core factor. And it's not just that it's the right thing to do, but that they they feel investing in this better world is a necessary aspect for their business to thrive.
1: Yes, that they have to do it. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this. I suspect those CEOs are still a minority, uh, and in fact, we have we're doing some polling right now of Fortune 500 CEOs that will help sort of uh, identify how large a minority. I suspect, though, they're still a m- uh, minority. I don't think you you know you're yet seeing every CEO say, "Boy, I've got to I've got to see what I can uh, do to save the world." But but more and more of them believe this is not just a good thing to do but it's a fund a fundamental has to be a fundamental part of the long-term strategy of their business because there won't be a long term if they don't figure
0: it out. Well, and that's that's what we hear a lot from, you know, the circles we run in what we have the show on what we're doing research on is that, you know, if we go back to the public health or global health example of Novartis, you know, big, you know, big pharma companies, biopharma companies are thinking about these issues not just as something good to do, but rather these are real opportunities to innovate and tap into new markets. I mean, I think you know the the farm industry is they're kind of tapping out on the the developed markets, and they need to move into these new ones. But yet, in order for people to afford drugs without dramatically reducing the price or something, you know, they've got to invest in some of that infrastructure building, and I don't just yep. mean roads, but rather you know the hospitals, the, the the healthcare workers, et cetera. And so, you know, that's just something that I see, especially in that sort of vertical. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think some are opening up more.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. But then the other thing that's happening, that that's definitely happening is, in other words, coming up with new business models to serve markets that they used to view as less profitable markets and say, wait, well, there is a way to serve these markets profitably. Let's figure it out and do it. We have an obligation to do it. But the other thing that's happening is a, a you know, at the end of the day, public companies need the support of the public to survive. And the pharma companies in the last year or two have come very close to losing that support. And and, the, and and they're a great example because the result is so clear. What will happen if they lose that support is the regulatory structure will force them into a very different place. You'll have... You know, the U.S. will do what every other country has done and start regulating prices or allowing Medicare to negotiate prices, which is another way of saying setting prices. That could stifle innovation and they will lose their freedom to operate and they'll, they'll become uh, subject to a, a, a much more restrictive regulatory regime. You know, one of the things that happened during the eight years of the Obama administration that businesses are very upset about is the biggest increase of regulation – that we have seen pretty much in the post-World War II period. Uh, a huge number, of, in various industries, a huge number of, of, of new regulations put in place that, that constricted business. Now, you could say, oh, well, that's, that was a function of President Obama or it was a function of a left-wing Congress or whatever. But I, fundamentally, it's a function of public attitudes. Uh, it was post-recession public attitudes mm-hmm. that drove that increase in regulation. And so if, if, if business doesn't want to be subjected to those regulations, then they have to figure out a way to prove to people that they're helping us make progress on key social goals.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm sensitive to thinking about the listeners we have who might be leaders of companies, but not necessarily quite at the level to join you guys at the Vatican yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so what are some of the things, you know, you're seeing the learning process for a lot of these CEOs. You're watching, them, you're watching them shift their behavior and their perspectives and then their corporate practices. What are some of those lessons learned that you think our listeners who are leading, you know, small, medium, even large, just not extra large businesses can do, can learn from to sort of be current with these, you know, the trends that these top leaders are seeing and doing?
1: I think it starts with a mindset. You know it was milton friedman who famously said the social responsibility of business is to make a profit period mm-hmm. i don't know if i have the quote exactly right yep. but that was basically the yep. effect yep. you know you, you go out there figure out how you can make money and let and and society will benefit and you don't have to think about it um, I, I i think we now know that's just wrong uh, and if you go back to someone like peter drucker You know, the way Peter Drucker phrased it, and again, I'm not going to get the words exactly right, but what Peter Drucker said was the responsibility of business is fundamentally figure out how to solve people's problems by harnessing the profit motive. You know, so start with the problem. Don't start with the money. You start with, what is my purpose? How can I solve a problem in society or a problem in the community or a problem that people were having? And how can I build a business model that will let me make a profit in the, in, in the, in, in the, along the way? So I think it's really sort of shifting to purpose first. I mean, look, a lot of good businesses have always functioned that way. Um, but too, we've seen too many examples in the last 20, 30 years that seem to be driven by profit first you know, hey, I, I, boy, if I jack up the price of this drug I just bought by, by 2,000%, I can make a ton of money for my shareholders, never mind the fact that hundreds of people are going to lose access to something that would save their lives. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so, I, I, so I think the, the, the starting point for any business is purpose first. What can I do to solve people's problems and then build a business
0: around that? And I actually think there's an emerging evidence base for that, too. um, That purpose, regardless of whether it is, we're not talking about like
2: social impact, social impact purpose, but clarity on your purpose. That
0: also drives the bottom line. And so, Alan, you know, as you think about bringing these CEOs together, you know, in a sort of a one day event or conference format, how do you maximize these people's times and, and so that they can learn from each other and then you can report on those learnings?
1: So so the interesting thing about being C- a CEO of a, a big company uh, is that you don't have much free time, and your time is overscheduled, and you have a lot of staff that is telling you how to use it and what you need to do and what you need to say. And so <laughs> what we do with these events is say, okay, we're only going to take one day. We're not going to take more than that. And we don't want staff involvement. So this is not an effort where you go to your CSR uh, officer, and say, hey, write me a ten-page paper that I can take to this conference. We want only want the CEOs. We don't ask for prep work because we know if we ask for prep work, they'll engage the staff, hmm. and we're not, we're not looking for the staff. <laughs> we're looking for the CEO's brain in the process. We put them in a room with 25 other people and give them two hours to really use their experience and their knowledge and their wisdom to try and move that problem forward. Uh, so that's the model. It, it's engaging the CEO and not the staff. Uh, uh, and and interestingly, they don't have that many opportunities to do that if you're running a big company. Right. So they really enjoy the opportunity as to think creatively. Um, uh, and so you see it sparking. You know, we've seen. Uh, uh, We did a dinner around this at uh, Davos in January, and there was a a deal between A.J. Banga of MasterCard and uh, the CEO of uh, – what's the drug company? Uh, One of the drug companies. That's okay. Gilead. Gilead. John Martin of Gilead. That was announced like two months later, and I said, this is great. We got a discussion going there about how they can serve underserved markets using the financial – uh, savvy of Mastercard and the medical savvy of Gilead, and so so we've seen these conversations. I, and I told you about the other healthcare example. We've seen these conversations spark good
0: solutions. That's right. And Alan, you know, it's we're, these are great lessons for us to take away for our own conference. And you know, we definitely look forward to hearing the results of the CEO initiative. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, time flies when you're having fun, but we are going to wrap up. I I would love to thank our guests and our listeners Um, i'm nick ashburn with my co-host sandy hunt and i'd like to thank sound engineer daniel bruno associate producer dion simpkins producer matt johnson program director patty hall this is dollars and change on sirius xm 111 business radio powered by the Wharton school for more insight from business radio please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu